Alex grew up in China and moved to Canada when he was in his second grade. He noticed a significant difference between the two countries' education system, particularly in math. Despite Canada's reputation for quality education, the math curriculum lagged behind what he had experienced in China, leaving him years ahead of his peers. This realization sparked an interest in understanding and improving the education system in North America, and this made him discover his passion for education. Four years ago, during a service trip to a rural village in China, Alex witnessed the harsh realities faced by children who lived without basic necessities and struggled to learn due to inadequate resources and unqualified teachers. This eye-opening experience. Led him to create Education for All Foundation, where they delivers English education to children in the rural area to enable them to take control of their life. In this podcast, we covered a variety of topics, including generative AI and personalized learning, challenges in the education system today, and how to find passion, and so much more. And here is the conversation with Alex Hu. It's really great to have you here, Alex.、Um, Great to see you, man. Yeah, you too, man. It's、uh, nice to be on. Yeah. So I'll I'll go straight to the point. So I have a very、um, broad, but I think very interesting question. So,、um, what do you think right now is the biggest challenge in education, in the education system in the U.S. or North America? Yeah, that's、uh, definitely a, a very broad question.、Um... I, I would say there's definitely you know a, a lot of nuance in it. So、um, you know there are because of how multifaceted you know the entire education system is. It's, there's definitely not one like actionable solution that everyone can implement. But I would say there are several you know like overarching themes that sort of we should focus on across the board. And one of those,、um, I think, the underlying. Theme that we need to focus towards is, you know, what exactly is the purpose of education, of the education system, and I think that across、um, the entire education system, that sort of purpose has largely been forgotten.、Um, and、uh, well, you know, from from the perspective of, you know, students, and you know, for what the education system was originally meant to do. Um, you know, it's meant for learning. It's meant for absor-、uh, for you know、uh, finding new ideas and exploring them and building things and you know creating citizens,、uh, turning people from children to people who can contribute to society.、Um, but instead, pretty much the entire education system has revolved into a system of credentialing people, of sorting people, of Making it easier for you know big companies to know who to hire and who to not to, and you know、uh, because of this sort of extreme、um, diverge from the original purpose of education, that is sort of the fundamental force that has shifted you know all these different policies and and you know designs of the school system to be the way it is today.、Um, So I would say, you know, in in a sense, you know, remembering that, you know, we're here because of learning. We're here because we want to, you know, promote a culture of learning, of culture of curiosity, not a culture of competition, not a culture where, you know, education is something that you do in order to get into the rat race. I I can't 
um, agree with you more. But have you thought about why that happens? Because um, I know it, it's it's all about signaling, right? So you have yes, you got into a good school, so that it signals that you have the capability or the intelli intelligence to be able to you know get into that college, and in in return, that the employer knows that this they they know the signal that you know since you get in, you must be capable, and you're probably work better uh, in our schools. So a lot of the um, company actually set the benchmark uh, for their requirements as you know what type of education you get in um so so why, why do you think you know signaling is so strong and it is something you know that education folks so much today well the main reason i think that the the main systemic reason why why the education system looks the way it's it is it does today is because the people who determine what the education system will look like are not the people who care most about improving the overall quality of education. Um, you know, people who are in power of the education system have, you know, their own agendas, and most of them are not, you know, for overall increasing education quality. It's, you know, um, you know, even for, for those large companies who, who do want, you know, really talented and quality applicants, it's better for them to have a system where maybe not necessarily everyone benefits, but the people who they hire will benefit, which is a very small minority. It's, it's the top, you know, one to 5% of students. Then it's better for them to do that than to have a system where, you know, everyone benefits, but maybe the top one to 5% don't benefit as much. Obviously it's a, a big oversimplification, but you know, you can see how even in situations like that, where it's beneficial for, you know, a certain party to, to have, you know, obviously better students and more curious students, it's not necessarily in their best interest to improve education as a whole. And, um, well, at the end of the day, you know, students are the people who, who, you know, uh, who, who, uh, benefit the most, who care most about, you know, overall education being better. But, um, the education system is, I think one of, if not the only major industries in the world where the student voice is not a, you know, it's not a major factor in, in actually changing education policy. You know, what other major industry is there where it's like the main stakeholder of that industry does not have any say? Um, I can't, I can't think of another one. But, but, but it's kind of hard for students to um, proactively say something because well, growing up, they're, they're obviously the first fact that they're still young. They're like, you know, eight year old yeah. or, or from from when, when six year old to to, uh, to eighteen. So it's it's very rare that people have constructed their opinions about a certain system. And since they're growing up inside of the system, so they perceived it as normal, or they perceived it as the way it should be. Um, right. So I, I think that's a little bit hard. So what do you suggest, and how how do you think that you know the governments or the system can listen or actually take some advice from students i would say th so this is the you know one of the tricky parts of this right where it's like yeah. there is the counter argument to you know incorporating student voice where it's like you know these kids are not you know maybe old enough or mature enough to really know what they need and that is mm -hmm. a very common i think argument against you know the, the entire idea of, of you know getting students to make decisions like that so you know the, there is that sentiment but there's also you know just as you know there are a lot of students who might not know you know what, what they need there are also a lot of students who 
do have a very clear picture of what is the best education for them and do, you know, know exactly like, you know, what, what, at least what problems exist within the education system, if not, you know, what solutions need to be implemented. So it's the job of, you know, the people in, 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 you know, in power, uh, you know, deans, uh, people who sit on school boards, uh, even companies, especially companies um, who, who, you know, hire these sort of students to really work with students, current students, and really understand, like, what exactly are the problems that they're facing and, um, you know, how, how they can really resolve it. And, and, and I think just to clarify that the problems I'm talking about are not, you know, things like, oh yeah, like, you know, the, the library that like closes at midnight or like, so I can't study or like, <laughs> oh yeah, this test format needs it. it. It's much more overarching problems. Like, Hey, like, you know, I want to go and study about, let's say, in, you know, do intercultural, uh, studying. Um, how can I do that without completely destroying my bank account? Um, you know, I want to go and see whether or not I can, you know, uh, in, in the, let's say the statistics class, how can I go and, you know, learn some extra stuff about like machine learning or all these, you know, uh, extra, um, you know, emerging technologies, how can I, can I incorporate that into the class and incorporate it into my learning plan? It's, it's, you know, questions like that, that are, that, you know, students, only students themselves can come up with the answers to, um, and right. identify as problems. Right. Um, but I think um, each individual students uh, have their background of how they grow up and how they formulate the perception of the world. In, re in, in turn, they have different problems. And yes. to, to construct an education system that um, can enable each different student to learn in the way that they learn best or to solve the problem that they want to solve is kind of difficult. And I, I'm not sure if it is if it is the direction that the education education system is going for, and I don't know whether it is the direction that they should go for. So, what what's your thought on that? Well, I think that if you look at it from a pure pedagogical perspective, you're absolutely right in that individualized learning is like pretty definitively better than you know a a, a panacea solution. Um, you know, one size fits all sort of education. Like it's just, you know, I think intuitively that also makes sense, right? Like if everyone has a personalized education that's, you know, catered to them, obviously they're going to do better than, than if it wasn't specifically personalized to them. Um, the, the question is just like, you know, resources, right? Like scarcity, um, you know, the, the, yeah. we, don't, we don't have unlimited, you know, teachers and, and time and whatever. Uh, so, but, but so, so that, that is like probably, you know, just the barrier to, towards getting us to a point where everyone can have personalized education. Um, but I would say that, you know, with ed tech and, and, you know, all these recent advances actually in generative AI as well, you know, um, mm. I'm pretty confident that in the next, I, I can't say how long, like five, 10 years, um, there will be, a lot of innovations in the sense of creating learning paths for students, like personalized learning paths, helping students mm. identify that not just through, you know, endless, like, like one-on-one -on -one counseling, because obviously, um, again, limited resources, um, but, you know, having AI that can potentially, you know, generate those paths for someone. Um, that's just one example of like a type of personalized education 
that that could work in the long term. But even now, there's already been, you know, uh, already uh, pretty personalized education being implemented. There's a lot of uh, learning apps, for example, that, um, you know, already, you know, their the personalization is a bit more basic, but, you know, they've already personalized all of the questions. For example, you're teaching math. You can already personalize, like, you know, exactly uh, which concepts to focus on, you know, which concepts uh, the student is struggling on and, and you know, particularly pr help them practice th those types of things. So there's already it, there's already advancements being made. That's great. I, I uh, have you heard about ChatGPT? You did, yeah, right? I mean, I think everyone has at this point. Okay. And, uh, and, and one of the very interesting things, I think it's very um, common that, you know, students use it to complete their uh, exams or complete their assignments. But one of the things that I found very interesting, also I heard from um, a previous guest on my podcast, Tomio mentioning that um, not only students are using them, but professors, they can use them as well to generate yes. different tests for students, personal tests. So that it can be like, for example, 100 students having 100 different tests, but in the same level of uh, difficulty and, and uh, can be marked very fairly. Um, I, I thought that that was very interesting because, you know, we thought, you know, it's a ChatGPT is a way for cheating, but it can also enable education. And like you said, I think it's a way to personalize education as well. So, you know, what's your thought on that? I mean, you're exactly right. Yeah, like the potential of, you know, generative AI for education is massive, not not just from a student perspective, but especially I, I would say from, you know, the educator's perspective as well, because, you know, for example, one of the very um, time consuming things on, on teach for teachers is uh, creating curriculum. Um, obviously, you can, you know, just use off the shelf software. But um, what I found is like, the best teachers, you know, all, all create their own curriculum. Some schools mandate it. Right. And um, right. that is obviously very, very time consuming. Um, and there's already been, you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, just recent craze around like professors using, using ChatGPT to like essentially create entire assignments. Um, and yeah, so, so the, the, I think the education system is definitely moving towards that direction. The worry I have about this is, you know, how quickly are we going to adopt it? Because you're all, there's also the point of, you know, if the education system remains as it has always remained with a lot of red tape, with everything needing like, you know, three, five, 10 years to getting, to getting all of the approvals, um, you know, obviously like the, the education system is just going to end up what doing what it's been doing for the last, you know, five decades of, you know, falling behind technological, mm. te technological in innovation. And, mm. um, we, that is, that is the, uh, let's just say the scenario, I think we want to avoid where, you know, all the students or like you said, using, let's say general VI to like, you know, cheat on tests or whatever, but like the teachers have no idea how to use it or d don't even understand it. And, um, I think that that is sort of the responsibility, uh, you know, of the education system now to like make sure that, you know, teachers and, you know, people teaching, you know, future technologies are getting ahead of those future technologies and, and, you know, becoming experts at it. I know, um, <clears throat> there are, you know, e even, but, but I mean, this is something I'm not as optimistic about if I'm going to be completely honest, just oh, because, really? yeah, just because, um, you know, even something like, like much less basic than ChatGPT, even something like creating a LinkedIn profile. 
I know mm. professors um, teaching college courses that, you know, of how to create a LinkedIn profile who don't have a LinkedIn profile. So, mm. you know, even something as basic as that, it's, you know, um, obviously there are exceptions, but I think I, I'm not super optimistic about the overall education system adopting these types of technologies. Yeah, I, I think one of the problems that I realized is that, you know, when I was going through university, a lot of the examples um, were the real world um, events that can associate with learnings are very old. Um, so yes. a lot of the concepts yes. they teach, uh, they stay, but the examples given that attach to, to those principles are very old. Um, so what problem that it creates is that, you know, that, that events or that, you know, example that they gave might not be relevant today. And um, the, the, the events that we all know nowadays cannot, was not presented in school. Yeah. Um, so it creates like, so like, for example, if, you know, real example right now in the, what's happening in the e e economy is presented or, or taught in the econ economic class, then I think people will be more interested in, and uh, actually learn more from that. So I don't know why school is not really, you know, keeping up with the real world what's happening in the world today and, and keep, you know, updating the teaching material. Maybe it's a bandwidth issue, but I would think that if they can update their curriculum very fast and very quickly, then it will dramatically improve the teaching quality. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. But um, I think for that, it's it's honestly more of a cultural issue within, within the education system. Um, because mm -hmm. if you think about, like, education as a commodity it's something it's it's one of those things where it's like in both especially in the parents perspective um but also you know the teachers and, and educators perspective education system, uh you know uh the, those ministries education ministries perspective education is one of those things that you don't necessarily want to take risks on you know it's sort of like healthcare where it's like you'd rather get you know it's bad, rather safe than sorry and um, because, you know, you only get one chance to, you know, ha educate someone in the earliest, you know, years. And um, that's, you know, made sure that no, that education, that, that's, you know, that, that sort of strategy, what it ensures is that, you know, the, the education system doesn't produce absolutely horrible results. But in the long term, it also means like there's very little opportunity for innovation. And, you know, people would rather stick with what they know has worked mm -hmm. rather than, you know, try out something that could be better. And when you compound that, we get to a point where, you know, people stick with something that's, you know, maybe been like me, like okay for the last 50 years, but I mean, the alternatives are too good to sort of like ignore. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's definitely a cultural issue where, you know, it's funny because, you know, in, in learning, we always say, you know, you learn through failures, you learn through making mistakes. Yet right. the education system itself does not seem to want to make a mistake in, you know, designing its education, which is pretty mm -hmm. ironic. Well, I, I guess it's true because you don't want, because it is students that you're teaching and you're, the students only have one chance to learn and you can't really afford to make a mistake on that because this is the future of that kid. And the parents who are sending the kids to school wouldn't want the, the, the kids to be going through an experimentation, but rather actual learning, right? So I, I think that is um, a hard part. Like, I, I really like the way that you connected with healthcare. 
because healthcare, if you do experiment, people die, right? Yes. Uh, and and I, I, I would imagine it could be a very, you know, similar thing. But I want to know, um, so so you mentioned about because they want to teach the right thing. Um, and, and you also mentioned that learning wasn't really optimized in the education system. Um, so what do you think is the problem with their teaching style right now? And in your mind, what can be improved? Well, I, I don't think it's it's a necessarily a problem of teaching style. I think that the, the poor teaching styles of today is a symptom of, of larger misconceptions about what it is to learn. Um, you know, for example, if we look at, uh, this is, this is a thing called Bloom's taxonomy. Um, it was developed by, uh, this person, the psychologist who, you know, studied a lot into, you know, the psychology of learning essentially. And he essentially characterized the different levels of learning, the level the different levels of understanding something. Um, and if you look at the pyramid, um, so, so the, the levels in the pyramid are, um, you first, you, you first go to, uh, memorization. Um, that's sort of, you know, just repeating things, you know, remembering definitions, things like that. Um, and then you go to, I think, uh, applying, um, mm. and that's sort of just, you know, using those definitions to really, um, like maybe you're doing a project or you're doing a assignment or you're doing a case study and uh, basically just understanding, okay, in, in a different context, what do these definitions mean? And then you have uh, application, applying things. Um, oh, sorry, did I, did I do that already? Uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Let, let me, yeah. let me pull, pull, pull this up myself. So I think, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, no there problem. we go. Yeah, sorry, I, I got that wrong. So, okay, it, it's it's first um, remembering, and then it's mm -hmm. understanding. So, just like understanding what those uh, definitions mean in different contexts, and then it's applying. Where you're applying those uh, definitions in and uh, to maybe you know, for example, um, analyze like analyze or create something else. Um, but that's in a very sort of like focused uh, and and um, safe environment. So that is like sort of where learning in school stops. And that's sort of where a lot of teachers, uh, sort of understanding of education also stops where, you know, mm. the top level of, of, of education is just applying your knowledge or your definitions into another context, but there's actually three levels above that. So the first is called analyzing where, um, you're essentially using that knowledge to then break down more, um, real world sort of context, as well as you're like actually breaking down what the definitions mean. For example, you know, in, in, we can look at, let's say a subject like accounting, you know, we can mm -hmm. say, you can know, you, you can know that cogs is equal to cost of goods sold, but like, what does cost of goods sold actually entail? That's what analyzing means, understanding, you know, what, 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 uh, the, the nuances of that. And then evaluating is essentially, that's the level above analyzing. And that's essentially using your understanding of what cost of goods sold to essentially make judgments, make decisions, uh, you know, on, let's say a company's sort of, uh, business decisions. And then at the top level, you know, this is what Bloom believed to be the, the most purest, highest form of learning that's creating where you're using your knowledge to essentially create something, even if it's not entirely new, no one thought about it before, but 
uh, even, you know, despite that, as long as you're sort of like getting to that conclusion by yourself and, you know, uh, that, that is sort of like what he deems as this highest form of learning. And so, you know, you, you basically never see any of the top three in actual schools, uh, at least not in North America, but, um, for example, Finland, um, they, you know, they're, they're pretty, uh, their reputation for education is pretty good. Uh, and, you know, apart from, you know, all of the other sort of details, one of the main, um, reasons for being so good is because they implemented something called phenomenon based learning in those schools. And this is essentially where they revolve their curriculum around these phenomenons that happen in society. And, uh, you know, these are essentially real world solutions, problems that, uh, the students have to come up with solutions for And in order to come up with solutions for that, whatever those problems are, they need to essentially go and apply and understand, uh, different knowledge from different disciplines, um, and essentially combine them into a project. So it's essentially problem solving, um, problem identification, and then, uh, creating a solution at the very highest level of learning. Um, and it's sort of, you know, the teachers there are, or have a, have a different mindset because they use this, this system. Um, you know, they let the kids, you know, play and understand contextual information. They don't focus on, you know, test scores or exams. They only have one test, standardized test in their entire 12 years of high school. Um, you know, they, they have all of these different philosophies where, you know, you go there and you say, okay, this would never happen, um, you know, in, in, in North America because the, they are operating under completely different contexts. So mm-hmm. I would say, you know, the, the really like, you know, when, when we're thinking about like how we can really improve, uh, you know, teachers teaching methods, it's less about saying, you know, oh, this method is better than this other method in teaching this specific thing. It's more about, you know, what exactly is the knowledge that you're trying to, uh, help people understand? Do you want to get them to a point where they can just, you know, know what cost of goods sold means, or do you want to get them to a point where, you know, they can be creating, uh, you know, uh, they, they can be creating balance sheets and financial statements for companies if they were asked to, that's sort of a completely different level standard of where, of, of what, you know, education really means. Sorry, that was but, but a very I, long way to answer that question. Yeah, thank you. But I, but I also want to, I'm very curious. So what do you think uh, is the goal of education? Because uh, a lot of the time getting through college, you know, in a lot of people's minds, getting through college and getting a good job. So yes. maybe their target is using education as a way for you to help you to find a job. Yes. Uh, or you can also argue education is for you to, you know, learn more about what's happening around the world to increase your scope of consciousness and learn and actually to learn, like you said, right. And I think in the Finland world is more, um, more romantic, more optimistic, where they want them to actually learn and solve problems in real life. And I think that fosters entrepreneurship's creativity, but a example in, for example, like China or, or, um, you know, in China, like it's more formula, like more formalized and people go to school so that they can find a good job. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I would think, um, 
most people think what education means, right? So yes, yes. What, what do you yeah. what do you think the, the goal of education should be? So I, I think this this is sort of where you know we, we go back to the point where it's like there's all of these different stakeholders that have different you know agendas for education, right? Because um, ultimately the education system is run by the government and for the government, especially for a country like China, where, you know, there's 1.4 billion people, it's much better for them to be able to just create a very standardized system to essentially, again, sort people based on achievement rather than focused on the individual student. And that's just simply because of efficiency. It's the least worst solution for them. And, um, you know, that, that's sort of why, you know, they have all these class rankings and, you know, everything is determined by like one test essentially. Um, and, but, but with that being said, um, you know, it's also the reality for a lot of, you know, people as well, like you said, where the education system is not necessarily, you know, they, they can't really think of it as a place of learning. They have to think about it as a way to get a better life, uh, to, you know, improve their livelihood. You know, they have to rely on it as a mechanism to, to, you know, change the future of the family. And, um, I think that is another reality that is difficult to sort of balance along with, you know, uh, our, uh, what the pure motivation of education should be, you know, to learn. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, I also think that there's no reason why these two motivations cannot be aligned. Mm -hmm. Um, because the ultimate, even, even if your ultimate goal for education, you know, as an individual is to, you know, get a higher paying job and, you know, uh, you know, make sure your family has a good future, you would still achieve those same goals, but much more effectively and, you know, arguably, uh, with a higher percentage of success, um, if you were learning, you know, going to school for the sake of learning, um, there is no, I, I would, I would, you know, strongly argue that there is nothing that someone who is highly extrinsically motivated to learn can do that someone who is intrinsically motivated to learn cannot do. Um, so I think that even, you know, for, for people in this, those situations, it is important to, you know, acknowledge the context of, you know, their education of, you know, they are learning, you know, for the sake, uh, you know, not necessarily for the sake of learning, but for the sake of, you know, um, getting the family in a better situation. But I think you can use that as motivation to essentially, you know, spark your curiosity in, in, you know, in whatever you're doing and, um, essentially use it as, as a, as a mechanism to, um, you know, enjoy school and not view school as something that you have to do, but as something that you get to do. And uh, I think how, for individual students, that's a psychology shift that uh, can dramatically, dramatically change, um, you know, how, how um, they view school and how like well they do in school, frankly. I think it's a very huge um, responsibility and job of the school to induce students intrinsically want to learn. But aside from school, what should students do or what, like how can they, have that shift in mindset that learning should be their objective and learning should be the thing that they want to do? That's a very good question. Um, so this is something that I also try to figure out, you know, for myself. And um, I don't think I can recommend, again, a, a solution for that that works for everyone. I think this is something that everyone sort of needs to figure out for themselves. Um, 
But for me, I, I, I took a rather, let's just say, extremist strategy to this in that um, after I realized that I could not, like letting extrinsic motivations influenced my drive is, um, you know, would be detrimental in the long term. I basically committed to removing any extrinsic influences. So what this practically means is <laughs> I stopped looking at what grades I got. I stopped remembering when the tests, like the test dates, essentially, I stopped looking at rubrics of like, for example, projects apart from like, just making sure I didn't like miss something huge. Um, and I essentially stopped the, I think the most important behavior change was I stopped studying for tests. And I think by removing these sort of like external indicators of, you know, my success in learning, I had like, that forces you to develop like more, more intrinsic, um, sort of reasons to learn. And it essentially forced me to make sure like, for, so, you know, just, just that one action of not studying for tests, instead of, you know, knowing when the test day is and cramming before the test, I had to make sure that I always knew the content of the course so that whenever a test came, you know, I, I, I could take it and do very well, you know, just as well as if I crammed the night before. And mm. that is something that genuinely one of the most powerful things I, I realized because it forced me to be curious, to be intentionally curious when I was actually sitting in class. It forced me to be intentionally, you know, study up on things when I realized that I did not understand them for the sake of understanding them, not for the sake of, oh, there's a text ne next Friday. And, um, doing all of those things actually made my just natural learning ability. It, it, it accelerated it to a point I had never sort of experienced before because, you know, mm. I had sort of conditioned my brain to like, enjoy, enjoy the process of learning because, because I had to, otherwise I, I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't, uh, I wouldn't be, be at a level of understanding that I was comfortable with where, you know, if a test came right now, I would pass it. Um, so I think that is sort of the, like, you know, that, that was my strategy, you know, in, in terms of doing that. And I, I will acknowledge that, like, you know, obviously at the beginning, it didn't go, go all smoothly. I, I did, you know, do pretty poorly on some tests initially. And, um, it, it was only in, I, I started like that strategy in like grade nine and it was only in the end, <laughs> latter end of grade 10 that I sort of like really mastered it. Um, and so it, it's definitely a very privileged, I think, strategy because I, Granted, not everyone, you know, is able to do that and have, you know, their parents understand or like, you know, have, have sort of the leeway to, to fail and get up again. So I think, I think, you know, if you, if you actually want to implement it in your own life, there are alterations you can do for that. But I would say still the general themes that you should, you know, aim for the general goals is stop placing an importance on the extrinsic indicators of your success and start placing an importance on just whether or not you understand the material. And as long as you constantly understand the material, as long as you, you know, know that you are, you know, mastering, um, whatever you're learning, then any test, any project will come extremely easy to you. Uh, has there been, uh, a subject that you really disliked, um, and <laughs> you know, and then you have to study. But it's like, I, I, I think it's a bit counterintuitive because, um, you know, I, I think you started with to not cram for the exam so that you moved it into 
having to learn every single time when you're in course. But yes, you 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 made that a force. You did not intrinsically you want to do that. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So it, how do you look at that? Yeah. So so um. I'll give one example of uh, when I was in high school, I really, really did not like my theology class because um, at that point in time, I was, you know, a pretty, you know, angsty teenager and everything, you know, pretty, pretty atheist, you know, like, um, and, and you know, taking a religion, taking, taking a course on, you know, the different religions and, you know, what people leave, like, you know, it, it, it's like, at that point, I was like, you know, this is just some useless knowledge, I'll never use it, whatever. Um, but and and so uh, I I uh, let's just say I did pretty poorly in that course, mm. but what I realized afterwards, you know, as as you know, I started you know um, looking more into religion just on my free time and and you know looking into it, um, I basically realized how important it actually is. Not necessarily because I you know believe in like the different religions or anything. Um, but because of how important it is just for human society to function, because of the role that religion plays in, in you know, just our modern world. Um, and since then, ironically, I've learned much more about religion, you know, just doing my own research here and there than I did in class. And I think that if I were to retake the class again, I would make sure I hung on to every single word that the teacher, you know, was, was talking about. Um, so I, I would say that like, it's another part of this is about, you know, really developing an appreciation for what you're learning, because mm. what I've sort of realized after that experience is like, there's very, very, very little things that are uninteresting to learn. Um, like no matter how inapplicable you think something is, it's going to be applicable, not not because you know you're gonna you're gonna make it a job or something, but because it's incredibly important contextual knowledge to understand to, to sort of developing your worldview. Um, I think that that is something that like you know because you know with the example of religion, you know you're, you're never gonna um, you, even if you're never gonna you know join a church or whatever. It's important to understand, you know, just from a psychological perspective, you know, why people believe in religion, you know, what role it plays in their lives, you know, how, and, and, you know, why, for example, there's, there's a lot of studies where it's like, ever since, you know, the US stopped um, becoming as religious as what was before, a lot of, you know, stats on like well-being and just a uh, sense of family and all of that have gone down, you know, how is it that religion was able to do that, but, you know, being uh you know let's just call it like more atheist uh was not able to do that i think those are important societal phenomenons that i think are pretty much applicable to anyone um you know no matter or not if you're religious um and um you know that that sentiment though you know is applies to every subject you know geology history um you know math science basically even English, you know, learning English, people say, you know, it, it's just, you know, oh, I can speak English, you know, whatever. It's, it's not something I really need to, I'm not going to write essays in my job, but you are going to have to converse with people and express your thoughts and be able to, you know, communicate in a way where people can actually understand you. And there's a reason why, you know, for a lot of business leaders, communication is one of their top priority skills. Um, you know, it, it's important to get anything done. Um, and so there's in pretty much every subject, there's, there's 
reasons to be interested in it. It's just about like understand, like like getting that in reason internalized, and and then once you've internalized it, then like your curiosity will essentially like automatically lead you to to being extremely curious about it in class. And it, it's sort of a at first it will sort of seem like a fever dream, but um, what will happen is essentially you're going to notice yourself hanging on to every single post that word that the teacher says. You're going to notice yourself, you know, doing extra research, asking questions um, mm, in a way that right. like you might have not, you know, naturally done before. I, I think that might be also the problem of cramming every subject and cramming every, you know, unrelated topics that, the, the system thinks important and dumping on you, you know, like I would agree all the subjects are important and they're definitely interesting, but it might not be interesting at the time. Yes. Right. So in reverse, three years later, you learn about religion, you know, learn, learn about the humanistic part of it. And one of a sudden it become interesting. Yes. Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like, I don't know. It will be a very, uh, you know, opt like, ideal world if I can learn the subjects that I want to learn at the time and even if like I'm what like 23 I can still learn the <laughs> courses in university and I know which certain course I want to learn that I think that would be ideal instead of cramming everything in four two three years right don't you think so yeah yeah um I mean I think that is a and I think that is another symptom of the fact of, of how you know our education systems are designed you know even even in you know middle school um, where it's like middle school and high school, <clears throat> high schools are not adequately like letting kids explore their interests and, you know, really identify what they want to pursue in, in college. Um, you know, there's uh, the only way that you can really like identify your passions and, and you know, like know, know what, you're, what, what will get you out of bed every single day is by trial and error, is by, you know, like, testing something out, you know, seeing if you like it or not, you know, if you don't, then try something else. Um, there's, there's no shortcut to that. And um, because people aren't, be, you, know, you know, being allowed to frankly explore that in high school or uh, be, because, you know, if you fail, then that's seen as a bad thing and not as a learning opportunity. You know, people stick to, you know, the courses that they know that they're good at, or, but, you know, maybe they're not necessarily passionate about. And, um, you know, that, that pattern can also happen in college where, you know, um, they just do that. And then, you know, get, you get to, onto, you know, you go and find a job and you realize like, wait, this is not what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. And then, you know, what, then what was the last, you know, eight years of your life for, um, just to get to that one realization, which I, I mean, I think for a lot of people, that is an important realization. It's just that you can probably get to that realization somewhere in high school if the high school were you know allowed you to actually explore it um and so you know if, if you just look at the statistics that th those also support I, these might be slightly outdated but um i think it's something like one in three two and three uh college students change their majors at least once um and then one in only so, sorry and then once people go out of college, only one in four people find a job that's actually related to the major. <laughs> one in four, which is like, you know, what did the other 75% of people spend their four years on? 
So it's, and then, you know, not to mention the ridiculous amounts of tuition nowadays. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's sort of a question of like, yes, you know, all of these things, you know, finding a job, you know, making money or whatever, all these things are important, but there is overwhelming evidence that you can achieve all of those things much more effectively. Um, if you were just interested in what you were learning. Um, obviously it's, that's a very oversimplified way of saying it, but, um, I think, you know, if, if schools, you know, stopped, it, it's sort of that question of like, you know, it, the way to make the most money isn't by working for money. It's by like, you know, letting money work for you or like creating value for society. Like it, it's sort of that question, you know, when you ask people like the richest people in the world, you know, like, how do they view money? Don't view it as like, it's not something they have to get they view it as something that, you, you know, they use to like achieve other things. It's sort of that question where it's like, um, you know, money, money and, um, you know, achieving th like these extrinsic things, they are not things that should be viewed as the end goal. They should, they are just mechanisms to achieve other things. And if your end goal becomes these extrinsic things, then you will just naturally choose a less efficient path than people who know what their end goal is. I think the reason why they chose to, um, like extrinsic things is that they don't know what, what are the intr intrinsic things they, they're looking for. And I think, you know, for people who know what they're passionate about, for people who know what they're working on, um, it's kind of straightforward. They can, you know, you don't have to, you know, tell them to do anything. They'll just go after their passion. But I think 95 or even like more than that of the people have no idea. And yes. I don't know whether it's, is it to blame the education system or is just human nature that, you know, majority of the people does not know what they want to do. It does not know what they'd like. Right. So, yeah. I think it, it, that is definitely, you know, that's a, that's a really good point where it's like, you know, who, who is really to blame for, for, you know, people not knowing what they want to do. But I would also argue, you know, from an individual perspective as well, like right now you could pretty much figure out you know, what you want to do just with like, I would say 90% of the people living in North America can probably figure out what they want to do just with the resources that they currently have. Um, mm. you know, there was like, first of all, you can research basically anything about anything. Um, you know, even if it's like, you know, a hobby, um, you know, you, you don't have to know what job you like, but do you know what passion, what you are passionate about? You know, what, what sports you're passionate about, you know, what, what activities that you really enjoy doing. Even that is something that I think a lot of people need to really figure out. Um, and you can do all of that just, you know, on your computer or, you know, you can book, you can find like local, you know, uh, chess, chess clubs or, you know, um, you know, different, different clubs you can join. Um, even if it's something, uh, like, uh, you know, gaming, the gaming industry right now is growing ridiculously quickly. Um, I think the esports industry is like going to hit like $300 billion soon. There was a ridiculous amount of innovation to be done in this space. And so, you know, with everyone who, with all the parents who are like, oh yeah, my kids, you know, addicted to games or whatever. Um, like, you know, if they want to make like gaming their career, that is a very, very, very viable uh, career option right now. Um, and so they already know what they're passionate about. Now it's just a question of like, which aspect of games do gaming do you want to work in? And of that, there are also, you know, a plethora, you know, do you want, want to work on, you know, the, the marketing side, do you want to work on just like creating the games, design, you know, 
so so many different avenues. So I would argue there is a lot of agency in people's hands. It's just like, but but people don't realize that this is the thing that they need to be looking for, and not you know just clear, purely you know where how do I make more money.、Mm. How how did you find your passion in education, or if education is your passion? I I, I would definitely、um, assert education as my passion,、um, and it it did take me a lot a, a long time to to find it as well. But、um, like I, I I think just to preface that I, I think I was very lucky and privileged to essentially have parents who were willing to like. Sign me up for like all these different sort of things when I was young, and like let me know what I didn't like.、Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, you know, when I was young, I did like basically I tried out at least basically every single sport. You know, soccer,、mm-hmm. basketball, tennis,、um, like basically anything you can name.、Um, volleyball,、uh, and I realized I didn't like any of them. And then they signed me up for chess <laughs> lesson. I was like, <laughs> and they signed me up for chess lesson. I loved it, and I was like. Yeah, and then and I've and I've been playing chess for you know the last like ever since I was in grade one,、um, and、um, so so I that I think that's that's something first to to clarify.、Um, so I, I was lucky enough to be in that position, but in terms of education, that's something that I've sort of also stumbled across just by trial and error, and.、Um, I, I would say that the reason why I think education—if you just ask me on the street, you know, why is education important—I would answer, you know, it's the only industry that drives forward human progress, that drives forward, you know, what will the future of, you know, the, the people who are on this earth going to, you know,、mm-hmm. be doing?、Um, no other other industry has that, like, you know, has that direct influence on, you know, what people are thinking. And you know what people's skill sets are,、um, so that's why education. But in terms of why education for me, I realized it because there was、um, the, so so when I I, I grew up in China uh, uh, up until grade two, and、um, in China they have a very rigorous math curriculum,、um, yeah. and I was I was doing pretty well、uh, by the time when I moved from China to Canada. I was、uh, I think like close to the top of my class. Um, that was in grade two,、um, and what essentially happened was from grade two to around like grade six or grade seven, I basically did not learn anything new in math because <laughs> that was how like far behind the Canadian curriculum was versus the Chinese curriculum, and so I essentially lost like four or five years of my you know math education right there in you know I would argue pretty crucial moments in my life. Obviously, I didn't realize at the time, but.、Um, Yeah, and and then because of that,、um, let's just say that like I I had you know I I wasn't doing poorly in math,、um, I was doing pretty well、um, you know above average you know by by you know Western standards, but I was far behind I think what I could have achieved if you know I didn't lose those four or five years, and that's just one subject for me when I am already super privileged you know where I am in an education system that is. Consistently in the top scores in the top ten、um, in the world、uh, in Canada, and so you know if I can suffer that sort of like loss of opportunity, imagine what all of the other you know collective talent out there is being lost because the education system is poorly designed.、Mm. I, I think that is something that I, once I realize that is is something that you know I, I don't think I can just.、Uh, 
go and let all of that human potential be wasted. So yes. that that's why I'm personally, yeah. You're on a mission. It's too important of a problem for you to ignore. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, determining what our future will be like. And uh, we can, right now we're, we're at a point where that is more important than other. Yeah. Great. And uh, uh, I want to hear your story about, you know, um, I think you, a few years back, you went to, you went back to China and then you went yes. to the villages and to, to saw the kids, um, how they live and how they learn. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that you were pretty shocked by that. And what shocked you? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so this was when, um, I think this was like four, four and a half years ago, almost. Um, so, so even though I, I lived in China, uh, grew up in China, um, I had only lived in the city. And so, you know, I only, basically, I, on, I only knew of China as, you know, bustling, you know, like city streets and, you know, extreme convenience and, you know, um, all of that and, you know, all, all of the luxuries of city life. And um, so, so I was very shocked um, when I went on a service trip and to, to a village in China that was, that it wasn't even that far off from where I lived. It was like two or three hours away, but, you know, just from a two or three hour drive, it looked completely different. I thought I was in a different country. Um, you know, they, some of the kids, you know, did not have like running water, running uh, any electricity. Um, there were a few kids who lived in caves in the side of the mountain. Um, like they were just a bunch of like holes sort of dug into like the side of a cliff face and they were living in it as their home. And, um, obviously they didn't have like Wi-Fi as well. Um, no electronic devices. Um, and, uh, it, it was essentially sort of, it, it would just, what I imagined the stone age to look like, but you know, if they had like plates and like cutlery and stuff like that, yeah. it, it was very surreal. And what really struck me was looking in this, what the school looked like. And you saw things that you cannot imagine, you know, anywhere, anywhere else in Canada. Um, at that time I, I was already, you know, sort of embedded into that, that sort of, uh, the Canadian education system. And that's, that's all I sort of expected. And so, um, you know, coming here, I saw, for example, teachers who, uh, were being paid less than half of what they, their salary would be in the city. Um, they were teachers who, uh, basically like did not have a teaching degree yet was still teachers and the school, you know, had to hire them because there were no other, you know, um, candidates and, um, the, the students, they, they did not really have a strong motivation for learning as well. And that's because there were other things for them to worry about other than education. They had to worry about, you know, will I have food on the table, uh, tonight, you know, will I have, you know, like, like a light to do my homework under, um, you know, they're wondering these very, very trivial things where it's like, these are not, these are just things we take absolutely for granted. Um, and sort of, so that's sort of the moment I realized that like, if I grew up in this situation, I would like. I would end up, you know, probably stuck in the poverty cycle as well. Um, I think, it, you know, we like to imagine that we are in control of our lives, right? That we are, mm. you know, we have agency over where, where our life path goes towards. 
But right. if anyone, like it doesn't matter how smart, talented, capable, hardworking you are, diligent, if you grew up in that situation, there is very, very little chance of you escaping it. And um, that was sort of an injustice that I also couldn't ignore. And um, one of the ways that that I realized that I could help is that, um, you know, I speak English, uh, natively. Um, and, um, the t English teacher actually didn't speak English at all. Uh, the, the requirement <laughs> for, yeah, it's ridiculous. The, the requirement for becoming a, an English teacher in rural China is you have to take w two English courses in college and then you can become an English teacher. Mm. And, um, let's just say that her English was so poor that she could not pronounce the words that she was teaching. So, yeah, um, and, and it, it was, it was something that I realized like I could immediately, you know, even though I had no teaching experience prior, I could definitely teach better than someone who cannot speak English. Um, and so that's sort of like when, when the organization started, um, at first for the first year, um, it was just me like teaching that class of 20 kids. Um, every week for an hour, um, just sort of like helping them with their pronunciation, getting them through alphabet, you know, cr uh, creating, getting them to, you know, speak the first sentences, stuff like that. Um, and then that's sort of our ethos today as well as an organization where, um, our entire goal is to connect, you know, people in living in North America who, who speak English fluently, um, to become essentially part of the English teaching faculty in these schools mm. and, mm. um, you know, teach as, as, as uh, long-term part-time teachers. Wow. That that's, that's amazing. I, I would, um, uh, I want to say thank you for doing this because, you know, um, these kids are, are really in need of someone who can teach them and give them proper education, especially in English. Uh, but I have a, so, so those kids are living under very poor conditions and, you know, having food on the table is one of the concerns but but like in that situation how how can you know teaching english help them um to expand their scope of consciousness and and help them to break out of their poverty cycle you know wouldn't teaching them more um, or even giving them internet can yes you know help yes. them better to get out of the poverty cycle so have you thought about that yeah, absolutely. So, um, something that we do with all of our schools is, um, we ensure that there's at least a stable Wi-Fi connection at the school, um, uh, because mm -hmm. all of our classes are online, first of all, but second of all, we make sure that that is a resource that the students can access, um, like just on their own, um, you know, ha having that, that Wi-Fi connection. Um, but the reason why we teach English, um, out of all of the other subjects is because it, it, the, the ultimate goal of us teaching them English, well, there's, there's, there's a few reasons. The first is that in China, only 1.2% of people actually speak English fluently, mm -hmm. meaning that if we are able to, to essentially put these kids in that 1.2%, they are going to be far more attractive to employers. Um, you know, the world, no matter, you know, what, what is going to happen is going to become more globalized. Like that is, a, you know, people who speak English fluently are in high demand. Um, the second reason that extends beyond us just teaching English, that is, that is sort of the ethos of entire why we work with rural villages is the fact that 
one of, you know, apart from just, you know, the, the hard skills of like knowing how to speak English. Um, the other thing we're teaching is a culture outside of the village, the world outside of the village, unveiling that sort of curtain that's been put around them. Because without us, these kids would grow up only knowing what their village looks like. Um, mm. They would not know anything about, you know, they, like any anything outside of the village, uh, outside of the, you know, four like or five buildings that they see. And, um, you know, they don't know what a skyscraper looks like. They don't know that we have, you know, uh, like drones and stuff. it's, you know, even like very basic things like that. Again, things that we take for granted, they do not know. They don't know of, you know, uh, you know, even things like, uh, basic geography, you know, what, what happens in, you know, the U S Canada. Um, and obviously we, we try to stray away from like political things. That's, that's something we ensure that we don't cover at all in our curriculum because for, I think for obvious reasons, (laughs) but, um, you know, just exposing them to like different cultures is something that is very important to us because what this essentially does is convince them that there's a better world out there that they can lead mm. and mm. have something that ins- constantly inspires them to, to work, you know, to work towards. Um, otherwise these kids will not have essentially a, a, a beachhead to, to, to stand atop of, uh, in terms of, you know, why, why exactly are you learning? And what we're trying to say is you're learning so that you can have a life in this beautiful, you know, pretty extraordinarily, uh, uh, world out there. Um, you just have to work hard to, to get to that point. Um, that's sort of the, one of the more sort of implicit goals of, of us sort of, uh, you know, of our model where, um, we try to, so, so our model is we teach one hour every single week throughout the entire school year. And, um, we, we purposefully implement a ton of different, um, like cultural elements, you know, showing different movies or like different, um, songs or even, um, you know, different technological innovations, um, all of these things just so that they can get a glimpse of what their sort of, um, what potential there is outside. That's great. And I, you guys also provide some source of financial support for the kids as well, right? Yes. Yes. So, um, if, if, uh, this is obviously on a case by case basis, but basically if, um, a student needs any sort of support, just, uh, you know, like for basic necessities, we'll try to provide it. Um, th- for example, last, uh, and, and, and so this is, um, both for individual students and for the schools that we partner with, um, for example, last, no, sorry, this summer, um, like four, four or five months ago. Um, one of our partner schools completely flooded over. Um, they, they basically lost like all of the equipment. Um, they had to, you know, not, not just like technology, but also like desks, chairs, um, you know, all the books. Um, and what essentially happened was the, the local education borough would not provide a single dollar uh, for reparations, which was pretty ridiculous. Um, and so essentially the money had to come out of teacher salaries as well as from us. Uh, yeah, really it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. How, how a teacher, wow, that that must be a really hard time for you and the teachers. Yes. Yes. But, but they would do it. 
they have to yeah i mean they it. have to do it yeah okay um and so it, it it's really a situation where it's like we 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 try to um th thankfully like our normal operations are frugal enough so that we can you know we can't afford that but uh yeah th this that's sort of the reality of like you know the context in which we're sort of operating in um where uh, yeah like th that that's sort of one example of like how we will essentially try to provide whatever we can provide but obviously you know it's um un until we get to a point where we can build a system that is very very low cost that does not require sort of um significant let's say government support to make work um they're always going to be reliant on you know things like that things like government funding which is obviously not something that they want to do yeah that's right um and how many like how many schools are you helping and then because uh, i i think that this can be a very big project and and um what are your goals and in terms of expanding to more schools and then having more students involved yeah yeah so um we we currently have around 20 schools uh that are partnering with us um we're teaching around 1500 students um and we and that's i think across four four or five different provinces um but we are actually like essentially pausing our expansion uh for the next two years because there are a lot of uh quality control things and and sort of procedural things that we have to improve um throughout the entire operation so we apart from english education we also have an education program um, and we also have a one-on-one -on -one mentorship program where we target the most at-risk students at these schools, and we um, essentially provide a big brother, big sister figure in their lives, such that you know they they have you know someone they can look up to, and yeah. um, so so these are our three main programs right now, and um, right now we're just focused on essentially like strengthening our relationships with these different schools. And, um, you know, uh, we're planning to essentially also hire a full-time team, but that will probably come, uh, in sometime in 2024. Mm, nice. And, uh, where do you, what is your big vision for this? Um, you guys are a not-for-profit, uh, is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so we're incorporated so in California as a 51 c 3 Okay. Nice. And then what, where's your big vision? So what do you want to achieve at the end? Yeah. Um, excellent question. Uh, I, I would say that it's, it's something that th there's, there's several parts to it, but the overall sort of goal is to develop a system, a, 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 a sort of framework, a methodology that all rural schools can sort of use in order to dramatically improve their education to the point where it's at least on par with their urban counterparts. Mm. Um, so, so what that actually looks like is one of the main tenets of, of why EFA works is because we use, um, pure teachers, all of our teachers are, are high school or university students. And, um, it's proven, um, pedagogically that uh, pure teachers are actually, they can be far more effective than actual teachers, even when it comes to one-on-one -on -one tutoring, but also when it comes to teaching a class, 
Now, the reason why pure teachers are not really a thing, like there's pure tutors, but there's no pure teachers, um, pure is because the first time I heard that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now the reason why they're not really a thing is because it's you know obviously difficult to train them, but it's also difficult to you know hold them accountable because they're not they're, they're students, not employees. Um, mm. But the reason why they're able to be such effective teachers is because number one, it, uh, because they're sort of much closer in age to the students that they're teaching, you know, right. they can relate a lot more to the students and explain things in a way that is understandable, much more understandable. On the flip side, the students they're teaching will also be much more receptive to what they're learning. And um, you, you just because of these two things, that already erases a lot of inefficiencies within the sort of, you know, normal teacher to student relationship where um, instead of, you know, someone who's like 20 or 30 years older, like telling you this is what you have to do, it's sort of a, you know, let's go and do this thing with my big brother or big sister. Like that, that is sort of the dynamic, you know, mm. that, that a pure teacher can foster. And um, our job is, is essentially like putting these volunteers in a training system and put then putting them in a real world scenario where they're actually teaching a class and seeing whether or not they can actually teach the class well. Mm -hmm. And so far we've seen that they can't, um, they we've, uh, the results we've gotten so far is we've been able to teach two to three years of English curriculum, uh, relative to what the English curriculum is in China, um, within one year. Um, and so we're wow. essentially able to get them close, if not on par with their urban counterparts. Um, but obviously that's not enough because the, like Chinese education system is already like kind of ineffective. Um, and so our goal end goal is to get to a point where we can get our kids to be on par with, you know, for example, North American kids in, in the, you know, um, English, English literacy, uh, but, you know, we think that this framework of, you know, pure teachers is something that can be implemented anywhere because all you need is a internet connection, you know, projector or whatever. And, um, you know, teachers who are, student teachers who are willing to do it and are trained to do it and, and, you know, any school can do it. And, um, the, that is sort of the end sort of like vision for us, uh, you know, that we want to make happen because, Another main advantage of student teachers is the fact that you don't have to pay them. And um, because of that, you reduce the costs of, you know, whatever, of, of just any school dramatically. Um, and obviously there are other, you know, issue, big considerations, like, you know, how do you actually hold people accountable and all of that. But our end vision is just having a world where pure, pure teachers are a normal thing to see where, you know, instead of having some, you know, rural teacher who's like pretty untrained in like several subjects, try to teach them, teach those subjects and struggle, you have pure teachers who already have mastery over these things and are able to essentially fill in as, you know, part of the faculty of the school. And mm. um, again, from, from what we've seen, at least with something as simple as English, uh, it is a hundred percent possible. Um, and now it's just seeing, you know, can you do it with something like math, science, you know, history, all of these different things. Um, but yeah, if it is possible, then it will dramatically change not only the education experience for rural students, but also, you know, what it means to actually be a good teacher. 
Um, because yeah, right now we're seeing a lot of our teachers being more effective than people who've been teaching for like 20 years and like went through, you know, teaching college and all of that. And um, we hope that that was like some real change um, within, within, you know, uh, these, these other uh, more developed countries as well. I, I think that's very interesting. You can put it in a way where, you know, countries treat goods, they import and export because, uh, because of the natural advantage of natural resources or some of a skill that, that was developed in the country. Uh, and we do all the trades, international trade all the time, but we don't see um, international trades in terms of education. Um, yes. You know, Chinese students, they want to learn English. So the natural way to get education of English is to from you guys uh, from yes. North America. And like you said, you, you were learning math in China. And when you go back to North America, you lost three, four years of that knowledge to being able to study or learn more advanced math or to even get good at it. So I, I think, you know, each country has their specialties where their level of area that they focus on, like in Finland, they focus on, you know, maybe more creative entrepreneurship. So maybe we can set up this sort of similar to international trade of international trade of education. I think that will foster a collaboration around the world and even an elevated knowledge base of every single subject a student learns. I think that's pretty amazing, man. Absolutely, absolutely. The the um, sort of multicultural element here is is extremely crucial. Um, we've uh, like these are not problems that are you know that are that are isolated to China. You know, um, and and you know the problems in in Western education they are not isolated to the U.S. as well. Um, like there are many many different countries experiencing the exact same problems, and you know they can all help each other. Uh, you know, in a mutually beneficial way. And, um, you know, for example, we've, uh, we have been planning an international expansion for some time into Malaysia, India, Bangladesh. Um, right now, I'm working with a school in Pakistan for another, uh, like more independent project on, on helping, um, I'm working with the vice principal to sort of redesign some of the educational programs. Um, but, you know, every single, like, country faces issues like this. And um, there are so many, so many different things that like we can learn from each other. So another theme in this is like, how do we remove the politics from this, you know, and it's it's not like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm like indoctrinating you or whatever. It's, you know, we're just teaching each other things, you know, learning from each other from pure, you know, curiosity, we're only driven by curiosity to do this. Um, I think that's sort of um, I think a very idealized version of, of what our vision is, but um, I think that is also um, the basis of a lot of it as well. That's great, man. Um, last question. So uh, if you have any advice to give for um, young kids who are lost in their life and they want to find a, you know, a way out like, like, like you, you know, finding your passion of education and maybe creating own, their own business, what, what are your advice for them to look for what they want and find their passion? I would say that the first really like step to take is to start exploring. Um, it's, it's very difficult to, there's very few things you can do without exploring. Um, because if, if you don't explore for yourself, then you're essentially following a system that is not designed to help you find your passion. 
And so the best thing that, you know, an individual student can do is just like start really identifying, you know, like what things do I care about? What thing, you know, will I, you know, when am I get that when I, when I wake up in the morning will get me out of bed and be like, okay, I, I can't wait to do this. You know, um, what, what exactly are, are those things? And, um, again, you can only identify those things through exploration. And once you've identified them, um, you know, then dive deep into them, you know, commit to it, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, um, obviously, you know, if it's something, you know, that's kind of unreasonable, um, then, then, you know, that's, that's also, but I, I think, you know, using your, your sort of ju just judgment, um, most things that you can be passionate about, you know, are, are also monetizable that you can turn into like a, a sort of calling. There's this Japanese concept called Ikiga, um, Ikiga. where, yeah, it's like the the thing that you will do um, most, be most passionate about your your calling in life, will be the thing that I think that it's four things. It's something that you can be paid for, something that you're good at, something that society values, and then something that I think you're also passionate about. I think it's those four things, and um, you know, it, uh, finding that thing for you, yourself is. Uh, is is very very important and then once you've found that thing it's just about like doubling down on it you know doing everything you can to pursue it um and okay obviously those two steps are extremely simplified but um that that's sort of the general you know um in my opinion everything else is a distraction from from that <laughs> if you've identified what that is but yeah like yeah. It, it, most people you know it's it's very difficult to identify what that is. And I'm very lucky to identify what it is for me. Um, but if you haven't, just start exploring, start researching. You can basically learn anything you want, you know, online. Um, so just start learning random things. And once you've found something you're learning and you, that you realize, like, you just cannot stop learning because you're so interested in it, like, start diving deep into it. Wow. Start exploring and find your ikigai. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom. And, you know, I really loved how the way that you think and approach a lot of the stuff uh, regarding education. And, you know, thank you for doing the great work and helping the students in the rural China to learn more English and uh, to learn more about the world. Thank you for doing that. Absolutely. You know, thrilled to be on here. And uh, yeah, great convo today as well. Um, really enjoy being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ideas Can't Wait podcast. If you have taken something away from this episode and really enjoyed our conversation, it will mean the world to me if you can leave a review on wherever you're listening or watching. It will help this podcast to reach more like-minded people like you. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next one.